for Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients, to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you have ever been a blood donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile here each week on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, and becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. It also means that you could come on as a guest for our podcast because this season we are telling both donor and recipient stories. If you are new to the pod and want to hear the origin story, please scroll back in your podcast feed and listen to the first episode, which tells the story of Mali and her big battle against seronegative autoimmune encephalitis and the way that Australian plasma donors have saved her life. To find updates on Marley and her amazing seizure response service dog, Patty, and all the news from the Milkshakes for Marley community, please join us on all the socials. Today, we have two amazing stories to share with you. First, we have 16-year-old Baxter and his mum, Noni. When he was 11 months old, Baxter was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. The gold standard treatment was a bone marrow transplant, but no suitable donor could be found. So Baxter and his family spent six months in hospital enduring round after round of gruelling chemotherapy, all while having their toddler in another city with her grandparents. On the podcast, we often talk about changing the narrative to additional needs families rather than talking about special needs children to better express the impact that illness, injury and disability has on a whole family. And in this interview, Noni shares this so beautifully. During the interview, I acknowledged that if anyone listening was a platelet donor in Queensland around 15 years ago, that they could have been the one to save Baxter's life. And our second guest for the day was doing just that. I'll bring you the interview with Jeff Steele in the second half of today's episode. So to thank the donors that gave the blood to make up 23 platelet and 12 blood transfusions that Baxter needed as a baby to get through 16 general anaesthetics and over 100 infusions of chemotherapy. I give you my interview with Baxter and Noni. Okay, today we have Baxter and Noni. They reached out to us at the Milkshakes for Mali podcast to tell us their story of Baxter's acute myeloid leukemia. So Noni and Baxter, welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Baxter. Um, So just a reminder to our guests at the top of this episode that this is not a medically or scientifically correct podcast. And it's just based on the recollections that Noni and Baxter have of that time, especially because it was so long ago. Um, We really want our guests to feel comfortable coming on and talking about their experiences rather than having to be medically correct, because in that time of trauma, it's so hard to remember everything. Um, So Noni, how old was Baxter when he was diagnosed and how did you know that he was unwell? Um, So it was a few weeks before he turned one. Mm -hmm. Um, He, or actually a couple of months before that, he had just sort of stopped growing well. So we were starting to have him looked at for 
what they were calling failure to thrive. Right. Um, and we couldn't really think of any reason why that would be the case. And the doctors couldn't really find any reason either. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were about to, if he continued to drop his weight and not grow, we were about to go and have a big review with pediatrics anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but just sort of in the week before Christmas, he just started to get really unwell. So um, he had bruises all over his body um, and just was not himself. Mm-hmm. So we'd taken him into emergency. Um, they weren't able to find any reason. Um, and so they sent us home again, but then called us back in to do some more investigations because I think they'd found some blood in one of the urine tests. Right. Um, and then so we brought him back in and at that point he was just getting sicker and sicker by the day. Um, so they got a clean catch and sent us home again. And we had a doctor's appointment that afternoon anyway. Mm-hmm. So we thought we'd keep it. And we went in and it was actually my mum who sort of said to the doctor, oh, have a look at his back. He had a bruise on every single um, bone on his spine. his spine. And I think that sort of sent her alarm bells ringing. So they sent mm-hmm. us off to get bloods. Um and it was later that afternoon, we just got a call saying, pack your bags and come in to the GP. Um, so at that point, we knew something was really not right. Yeah. Um, everybody at the GP was really kind, but nobody sort of said much. Um, they sent us off to the Royal. Um, I opened the letter in the car and it said, mm-hmm. likely acute myeloid leukemia. And obviously then we were just like frightened, scared. Mm-hmm the longest drive ever yeah um and it just sort of started from there that's a lot isn't it so he was one at that stage is that right just a few weeks before being one so 11 and a bit months darling so still so little yeah and fully like he wasn't he was still breastfeeding there wasn't sort of any reason to yeah any reason yeah any inkling at all of what I never thought that was what they were going to say. No, no, you never do. And you think, you know, failure to thrive and you think about your milk supply a little bit or, you know, what you're eating or whatever, but you don't ever think that it's going to be something like that. That's a lot. Um, yeah. So, Baxter, do you have any siblings? Yeah, we've got two, two siblings and then some half-siblings. Yeah, so are they older or younger than you? Um, so the half-siblings are older and then I've got an older sister and a younger brother. Yeah, awesome. So you had, how old was your older sister then when you were diagnosed? How much older was she? Subject was two. Yeah, two two and a bit. Wow. So that's a lot to juggle as a family with two little people like that as well at that age. We basically just um, dropped her at my mum and dad's house and Mm -hmm. that was it. She sort of stayed there for a long time. Like obviously was coming and going with us, but... um, you obviously can't have a toddler in a cancer ward, you especially can't. when yeah, not oh, she would come and visit, but you can't yeah. have them there all the time. It was just it's just not yeah, we didn't anybody really, and even just germ wise, it's really you've got to be so careful with having so many immune suppressed people in a cancer ward as well. And that's one yeah. of the things that we've really talked about through doing this podcast and through the writing that I do is not talking about. Um, 
special needs children, but looking at the whole family unit and talking about families with additional needs, because the day that Baxter got that diagnosis, that impacted every single person in your family. And it's not fair to, you know, I think when you talk about families with additional needs, it takes that blame element. I think special needs child makes it feel like it's the child's fault that your family goes into that chaos, (laughs) but there's nothing that, you know, little one-year-old Baxter or however old you are when it happens, there's nothing that you could have done to you know no that diagnosis change or whatever so um yeah we really talked about that and the impacts that it has on everybody and not just during the acute event but you know going forward and how much it changes your family dynamic so thank you for sharing that part of your story um can you tell me about Baxter's treatment what happened when you first got to the hospital what did they say to you so I'll never about waiting in emergency ever again in my life because we were that family who tied up every single doctor and nurse for hours and hours yeah um so we sort of got down there we couldn't even speak we were just I was just bawling my eyes out and they just were expecting us so they just sort of ushered us through um and then it just it was um you know different doctors coming and going and they needed to call in the consultant obviously who was going to start looking at treatment because he was getting sicker by the minute so by the time we sort of got down there he had sort of a perforated like his whole system was starting to sort of shut down um so he's you know had a perforated eardrum he was you know conjunctivitis all these big temperatures all kinds of things happening um so they talked to us a little bit because obviously you can't process at that point really well what's going on but I just talked a little bit about the immediate plan was to get him to theatre um put in a central line start some chemo um into his spinal fluid and fluid around his brain to sort of get that under control and then sort of work from there so it just moved very fast from just being a normal family to yeah in getting moved into the cancer ward and I remember walking you know, being walked up there going, oh, like, you know, just bursting into tears again, seeing those little bald headed kids pictures on the walls and going, oh, this is us. Yep. Yep. When you hear cancer, it's very hard not to jump ahead and think about that as a potentially terminal diagnosis. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I thought was going to happen in that, Mm -hmm. like just um, my husband, lost a baby to SIDS um, prior to our marriage Um, and just going through my and he was Baxter was a similar age to what Cheyenne was Mm -hmm. and just I just remember thinking it can't but then you know in my brain going but he's not going to die because you can't lose two children (laughs) so you know part of me was going you know thinking that this is it for him but also sort of going you can't lose two so he's going to be all right. Yeah. And look at him now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Check him out sitting there next year. <laughs> it's so hard to believe as well at that time when you're looking at them. Like I think when you've got a child that's that unwell, it's almost like they're frozen in time. Like you can't think past them being a baby. Like you can't imagine. You don't, you don't allow yourself to imagine them being teenagers or driving a car or getting married or any of those things because you just, yeah. You can't think past that moment in time. No. Um, so what did his treatment look like? So he's, um, so the funny thing is we, I think that I had blocked a lot of this out until messaging you. Um, and mm-hmm. at that point, so this is 15 years later, 
I um, yeah. got out all the diaries that I'd kept. So I wrote diaries every day and I wrote emails to yeah. people and updates. And I got that out and there's sort of like 150 pages of typed emails. And I haven't looked at those for all that time until I, you know, talked about doing this with Baxter and we thought, okay, well, let's revisit it. And that's why I didn't yeah. contact you again for a long time because I started yeah. looking at it and I was like, oh, actually, this is a lot. Um, yeah, it is a lot. So they kind yeah. of they kind of gave it to us in pieces of what it. So initially, you know, I think they give you what they think you can handle to start with. So they're like, you know, we'll yeah. get this, we'll get him to theatre, we'll get this central line in, we'll get this chemo in, and then we'll figure out what to do then. Um, mm-hmm. but as it sort of unfolded, um, the treatment plan was going to be. So for a kid, I know there's two kinds of leukemia for kids basically and acute lymphoblastic leukemia um ALL Mm -hmm. is one that's highly survivable but has a really long treatment plan and Baxter had a very rare one for little people to get um Mm -hmm. and they weren't really sure of what treatment I was going to use they had to sort of dig through lots of protocols around the world to find one so it turned out that the um protocol that they wanted to use was six months of intensive chemo and a bone marrow transplant um right and but there was no bone marrow matches for Baxter in Australia um so they decided to just sort of go with the chemo and see what happened Mm -hmm. god that's so difficult knowing that there was a possibility that something could have saved him and you were using the second line treatment rather than the gold standard treatment. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we didn't know any better back then. So we're like, okay, no. let's, you know, they. And I mean, there's nothing that you could do about yeah, it. No. It just would have been a lot of information. Um, and we will pop a link to the bone marrow registry in our show notes as well. So people can have a look at how they could potentially be part of that. Yeah. And so now yeah. they actually were now next son was born. So after all this was over, we had Tully, who um, was born a couple of years later, and they took the stem cells from his cord. So they have those down there yeah. in case we ever need those. Mm. But we're not going to. Wow. No, no. But And because you've got that insurance policy now, you won't need it. That's what we always say. Always plan for the worst. And then, you know, when the best happens, then you're happy about it. Yeah. Um, so during Baxter's treatment, he needed 23 platelets uh, transfusions and 12 whole blood transfusions. Um, can you tell me about the transfusion that he needed on Christmas Day where they actually had to look for some blood for him because they weren't sure if they had any available? Yeah, so his blood type isn't all that common. So it's not, it's one of the, mm-hmm. yeah, being a B positive, isn't it? Oh. Um, one of the least, <laughs> less common ones. So it took a, it took yeah. a little while, but... Um, so he was needing them every couple of days. Um, and, yeah, they, they wanted one for, he needed one on Christmas Day and they couldn't find it. They had to ring around and um, eventually they located um, one and it came with Christmas tags on it, <laughs> addressed to you with oh, little, wow. you know, um, Merry Christmas tags. Yeah. And that really highlights the importance, too, of making sure that um, our donors still donate around public holidays yeah. and when you go away on holidays and whether that's part of your holiday planning that you book a blood donation in at the place that you're holidaying in you know it's that time on holidays that you really relax and you've probably got some extra time you don't have to fit it in around work or whatever and it just makes you feel like a million dollars on your holiday if you go and do a blood donation and you know that you can be helping you know keep another family together during Christmas yeah. um 
can you tell me about what Baxter's experience of having the chemo was like? How long did he have chemotherapy for? Yeah. So um, when we first found out about the plan, so it's a really intense um, regime. So it ended up being, oh, I don't know, it was like a hundred and something infusions of chemo. Um, they told us sort of that you would have a 10 day um, period of chemo and then you'd probably go home for a couple of weeks and then start again once his blood levels had recovered. So we were quite okay with that. We we're like, yeah, that's good. We can handle that. But it turned out that he never sort of recovered in between. So we didn't really get out of hospital for those six um, months at all. Um, Just couldn't sort of get his levels up or he wasn't well or he had a temperature or he had a bug or something that was keeping him in. So, um, but, you know, we adapted um, as you go because what are you going to do? You can't can't change it. No, you can't. No, you can't. You just got to do it. And it's incredible how... You just, the outside world just doesn't seem to matter. Like you just get sucked into that vortex of being in a ward on a children's hospital. And, you know, I remember, you know, watching, I had to stop watching the news and all of those kinds of things because I just didn't understand why people would complain about such frivolous things or find things interesting or controversial or you just, you know, and it's such a gift to people that haven't seen that other side to know, you know, how fragile life can be but yeah I we haven't really gone back to watching news since Marley got sick because it just makes us too cranky all right so we will move on to Baxter now so Baxter the focus of this podcast is um to talk about all the amazing things that people do with their lives after they receive blood products (laughs) so we talk a little bit about your treatment and you know what happened in your past but I want to know about you now so can you just tell me a little bit about what your life looks like now um I see that you recently got your learner's driver permit yeah so yeah, yeah, as a 16 year old going to school, driving, um, I'm a middle school leader at school, part of the student yeah. council and all that. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So um, when your mum reached out to me, she told me um, that you um, used to go to the same school. We won't actually mention the name of the school, but <laughs> used to go to the same school that our family goes to the school now. And our son, Thomas, is part of the um, leadership group there. So he is a sports vice captain. And I believe that you were the school vice captain when you were there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. 2017, I think it was. Yeah, cool. It's a pretty special little school, that one. We do love it there. Um, So do you play any sport? Uh, Yeah, well, surf, skate, main two things I'm into. Yeah. Yeah. And then a bit of everything like I do if someone else is playing it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So just a bit of an all-rounder. Yeah. But love your surfing and your skating. Well, we do live in a good place for that to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Have you been to the skate park at Dickie's Beach that they set up? Yeah, so um, we were actually behind, like, keeping it there, a big part of that. They were planning on just getting rid of it as a whole. And we kind of, like, got the community together and kind of, like, made sure it was all good and they kept it and did it up and stuff and all that. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, so creating those spaces for people to be able to play and build community. And, and that's exactly the type of thing that we talk about. Had those blood donors not been able to provide you with the blood products that would have saved you when you were a baby, you wouldn't have been able to go on and, you know, live this beautiful life and have those community connections and do volunteer and advocacy work like making public spaces available for people to play and have fun and blood donors have given that gift to the Sunshine Coast community by having you as such a strong part of it so um, and that's one of the things that I really wanted to highlight too if somebody's listening to this episode and they were a blood donor in southeast Queensland 15 years ago you can listen to this episode <laughs> and know that you kept Baxter alive and you kept this family together and that's a really 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 special thing. Um, so do you remember any of your time in hospital or really. any it's of just kind of a blur because I'm so young but yeah like, the only bits I remember is like the post remission and stuff like and looking back at it all like for yeah. photos and videos yeah do you have a scar from your central line um yeah it's located just under my right side there yeah yeah they can so He's got a few because they, being a baby, he pulled them out and they got infected and this and that. But he's got a cuff that's left oh, behind in there, um, which is quite freaky, but he likes it. And they did offer to take it out, but he's like, no, he chose to keep it as a bit of a um, yeah. battle scar. So you literally just took the words out of my mouth. So Marley, our little girl, is six now and she had a port put in central line when she was three. And we didn't ever use medical terminology because she was little. So we would call it her special button. And she got to choose when she would, had treatment. They were, she always called cannulas teddies because they put the teddy stickers on oh. the cannulas. So, you know, do you want teddies or do you want special button? And that gave us a chance to be able to give her a little bit of bodily autonomy and a bit of a choice over her treatment. She would always choose special buttons. So she'd always choose to have her port accessed. And we had um, Central Line Kink last year and they had to take it out and it was a whole drama. But when she woke up, she was like, do I still have special button? And I was like, baby, they have to take it out. We had to go. And she was like, oh, do I still have my special line? And I was like, oh, I thought she meant the central line, but she was talking about the scar and she really didn't ever want to lose that scar. And even now you'll see her rub it occasionally when she's feeling a bit stressed in a situation. And she really has that sense of that bravery in the big battle that she's fought. And yeah, she's really proud of those scars. So it's interesting that you wanted to keep that cuff Baxter just as a bit of a <laughs> reflection of how tough you are and what you've been through. So do you have much medical follow-up stuff now? So it's just basically a year lead checkup and an echo. Just had my echo on Tuesday, was it? Monday. Yeah. Monday or Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. Just checking And out. everything's looking good? Yeah, everything's all good. Yeah. yeah, he's been very lucky with, yeah. we had a few years of still trouble growing and putting on weight afterwards, um, but yeah. everything, you know, his teeth, his heart, everything is good. Um, puberty happened, so yeah. that's a win. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you worry about. Yeah. 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 That's so an interesting part is um, because it was 15 years ago and, you know, you talk about the changes in the, medicine they used massive amounts of one of the particular chemos um back then which they don't do anymore and that's why they right. need to have these um heart checkups because it's a bit of a heart wrecker the particular you know mm -hmm. so we we were asking the oncologist a couple of years ago about it and she said oh yeah well this is why we have to keep an eye on his heart because you know back then the doses were so much higher 
So I think he's yeah. really lucky to have come out it, of it as healthy and well as he is. Yeah, yeah. And you just, we have had a similar one. Um, there's a particular medication that Marley took that we knew at the time would just make her teeth shudder. Like even her adult teeth that haven't even come down yet have all broken in her mouth. And we were had trip to theatre a few weeks ago that we weren't expecting because she just had to have some teeth taken out because it was creating an abscess in her mouth in an adult tooth that hadn't even come down, like the baby teeth hadn't even fallen out and there was an abscess up there. And, you know, we have to be so careful with fevers because that can cause seizures and inflammation in her body and all of those things. Um, But in that time where you've got something that's potentially terminal, you're just like, you know what, we'll get her some false teeth if we need to. Like just give her whatever she needs, you know. And it's amazing those things, you know, those deals that you make with the universe, you know. You can have her teeth. You can, you know, we don't care if she doesn't walk, you know, whatever it is, just keep our baby with us. And, yeah, to see, like to go from that, and I know I've, you know, sat in that space that I'm sure you sat in, Noni, to see Baxter now and the incredible things that he's doing. It's yeah. just such a beautiful thing. So I think that's a nice way to round out the episode. Do you guys have, well, I'll leave it to Baxter to finish it out. Um, do you have a message to Australian blood donors um, or anyone that's thinking about donating blood in the future? Look, um, I don't know, I guess like it just brings the family back together and stuff. Like, so it's a good idea. And yeah. yeah, I'd encourage it. And I'd be keen in the future if I could like donate blood and stuff like because I saw how much it bring our family back together and I'd like yeah. to do that for some other kid and if it's keeping them alive then that's yeah. what I'd like to do and then yeah just do my amazing yeah well when you turn 18 I'll hold you to it if you're <laughs> able to donate we'll go in together and Marley will take you in because Marley loves going and sitting with people while they donate blood and holding their hand and telling them that they have to stay still. So she'll say, you know, now listen, if you're silly and you move and you pull your arm away, then the nurse won't be able to get it in the first time. But if you're (laughs) really still and you take your deep breaths, it gives the nurses the best chance of getting it the first time. (laughs) It's just that, you know, wise beyond her years. She quite happily, and she loves going around and telling people at the donor centre, you know, thank you for my plasma. And it's that real, you know, people can see her and they can see the living embodiment of what their blood donations do. So when you hit 18, you let me know. And yeah, we'll all go in and do a donation together. (laughs) That'll be good. Yeah, these kids are amazing and I'm sure Marley's the same, but there's just something about them and I know that Baxter's community feels that way about him. He's a mm. he's an amazing human being. He's just yeah. different. Yeah, Eyes. and I can feel that that strong advocacy within him and that's going to serve, you know, you so well into the future, but how lucky, you know, as a community are we to have you as part of it, Baxter. So thank yeah. you so much for reaching out and thank you for joining us on the pod. Um, yeah, and I look forward to seeing you grow. <laughs> Thank you. My second guest for today is Jeff Steele, who has given over 500 blood donations and was donating platelets at the time that Baxter needed them. So he could very well have been the blood donor who saved Baxter's life. Here is my chat with Jeff. All right. Hi, Jeff. Welcome so much to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Um, we've absolutely adored having you as part of the Milkshakes for Marley community. Um, this is our first donate interview that we're doing for season two. So welcome to the pod. 
Thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. And it's an honour to be involved. Thank you. Um, so we met earlier in the year at the Lifeblood Donor Centre in Maroochydore, um, where you were celebrating doing donation number 500, which is just incredible. Thank you so much. Um, it was such a joy to have Marley there to thank you and to be able to see firsthand how donors have kept her alive. And, you know, that's what this podcast is all about is bridging that gap of anonymity between donors and their recipients. So being able to bring her there to say thank you to you is so special to us as a family. Um, what does it mean to you as a donor to be able to hear recipient stories? Um, it's, it cements the reason for doing it, I suppose, for me. Um, it's just because with the numbers like that, as you say, it's just part of who, who I am and what I do these days, but it just continues to reinforce and re-engages that little bit deeper and just makes personally makes me strive that little bit more to try and get the word out to more and more people to to donate and not just to donate but to do it regularly make it a part of your life mm, yeah amazing um can you tell me about your first ever donation i know 500 donations ago probably it's probably more than 500 now feels like a very long time ago um but what encouraged you to make that first appointment well, um, misguided medical information was the word it was the words they used to me. Yeah. Um, I did and still suffer occasionally nosebleeds. I suffered quite badly as a young fella. Right. Um, and um, someone suggested that perhaps giving blood would help that. Okay. So that that got that started me. Uh, as to why I kept going in those days, I honestly couldn't tell you, other than the fact they had yummy bickies and things in the van <laughs> back back then. So. So but, how old would yeah. you have been when you did your first donation? Yeah, see, I hate it when people ask that because I have no idea. I don't remember. Um, certainly it was the nearest time my wife and I, Annette, can come up with is I was donating when I met her. So it was pre-2021, wow. probably so about 18 or 19, I think I started. Yeah. So it really always has been part of your life. Pretty much. Mm. As my adult life, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything in terms of the experience of going into the lifeblood centres that has significantly changed across your 500 donations? What's changed about the experience? Oh, probably really heaps. I, I mean, I started off in the van mm -hmm. um, and ch almost chasing that around to get in on the, on the 11 and 12 week cycle. But uh, in the donor centres, I can remember um, in Nambour when I started to do plasma, they, um, you got your cup of coffee coffee proper mm -hmm. well by proper i mean it was hot at while you were donating and a feed right sure so we did. did it at the same then time yeah yeah and then they changed that so you had to donate and then you had to go and sit in the waiting room and yeah. you could still have and it was homemade food mm. which was just there was one lovely lady whose name now escapes me because it's a some time ago of course. um used to bring in home cooking and it was beautiful yeah so. Well, big shout out to the amazing people at the Nambour Donor Centre. Um, we have spent a bit of time over there with Marley and Marley's service dog, Patty, as well, and taken them in a few times. And they're such an incredible crew over there. So we'll say hello to them from the podcast as well. Um, surely over those years of donating, when you think about you as, you know, a 21-year-old, there has been many competing priorities in your life and there would have been good excuses for not donating across that time. Um, what is it that's kept getting you in the chair? Oh, that's that's a good question, Kate. Um, that's yeah. Now I've got to think about that one. Um, I 
think it's just part of the way I was brought up in some ways that when you commit to something, that's it, you, you yeah. do it. Um, and it become an important thing to me. And I, I couldn't give you a single reason for that, but it's mm -hmm. just, I, the more I did, the more I started to understand how important it was. And because I lead, uh, what's a good word? Boring isn't quite right, but it pretty much sums it up for some people, a very <laughs> normal, easy life where all the questions you need to answer yes, no to, you can. Mm -hmm. um, that it, I, it was important for me to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been thrown out a few times for various reasons and mm -hmm. had discussions with the medical boffins down there to, to allow me back in. But, you know, you do what you have to do. Yeah. Because it is important for people. So important. So important for people. Um, have you had any life experiences, even though you just told me that you lead a boring life? I'm sure it hasn't always been that way. Um, that have influenced you to keep donating. And when I ask this question, I think about um, the stories of when, you know, the Twin Towers were hit with September 11 in the US. And the first thing that people did was line up to donate blood because they assumed that there would be lots of burns and lots of injuries that people would need blood for. Um, we saw lots of first-time donors come through during the COVID pandemic because people just felt so overwhelmed by the way of the world that they felt like they wanted to do a good thing in the world and blood donation was something that happened for them. Um, do you have any personal world life experiences that you can attribute to continuing donating? Um, I've, like, unfortunately, say most people have had people in my extended family who've suffered and a couple have actually passed away from cancer. Mm -hmm. um, some of them, were one particularly was before I donated. Um, but through that, more recent, in more recent times, I've, a good friend of mine um, who is now in remission, or I don't know what's the word I'll use, um, had stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Um, he ended up basically, it was bone marrow that saved his life so far. That sort of thing. And you just hear your extended circle, there's always something like that going on in someone's life, people like yourself. Um, and the strength that they and yourselves display is just like, well, what excuse have I got not to continue to donate? You know, it's for me doing the triple platelets is an hour and a half in the chair, give or take. So all up, by the time you do your interview and that and sit down and eat as much as you can afterwards, um, yeah, it's a couple of hours, but really it's, it's, there's not, it's not a cost. Mm. It's, there's no cost to me. It's two hours a week. It's nothing. Oh, fortnight. Sorry. It's nothing. Yeah. Time well spent. Um, mm. and on that, do you have a favorite post donation snack? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. Um, they had a particular sausage roll for a little while and I'm trying to remember what it was called. <laughs> um, oh, gee whiz. Um, yeah, it was like a spicy Mexican one. That was awesome, but they've stopped that. All right. Well, I'll see uh, what I can do. I'll see if I can give some feedback. <laughs> don't stress it. I don't think anyone else ate them because I never saw anyone. They, were, they, had, they had a kick. <laughs> Bring back awesome. the sausage rolls. I reckon after 500 donations, you should be able to put in a request for the sausage rolls if you want. <laughs> yeah, well. I think that's probably fair enough. Um, and yeah, Marley right. wanted me to ask all of our donors during this season, um, what is your favourite milkshake flavour? Oh, iced coffee. Yeah, that was answered very quickly. That was absolutely. Oh, yeah, it, it's got caffeine. It's coffee. It's, it's yes. coffee. <laughs> In whatever form I can obtain it. Yeah. 
Um, what message would you like to give to anyone who's considering becoming a blood donor? Please do. Yeah. To put it in really simple terms. Yeah. Yeah. Terms. Um, find someone you know who's doing it. Go with them. If you're not sure, go and approach the ladies and they'll talk you through the process. Mm. It's, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not painless, but the level of pain is so small. It's just mm. not worth worrying about. Yeah, I've, I've had tetanus shots that hurt more. Mm. And I think for a lot of people too, it's that level of anxiety before the actual donation itself is more painful than actually going through the process. Yep. So once yeah, you get in yeah. the door the first time, you realise how well supported it is, how professional it is. Correct. You know, that they'll do anything to support you to make you feel as comfortable as possible. And yeah, after oh, that, yeah. it doesn't seem yeah, like such I, a big deal. I still don't like needles. but you know. No, no, I don't like needles either. But, you know. We do these things. <laughs> we That's do right. what we do. Um, yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to tell people in the Milkshakes for Mali community? I think, um, and this is really, really personal right now, um, when you get excluded, don't take it as a you can never do it again because right now I'm on about my, hang on, I've got to add it up now, mm. about my fourth or fifth exclusion. Right. Um, I had two years off because I decided I had chest pain. So that put me out mm -hmm. for a couple of years. Um, and I have issues with ferritin levels and stuff like that. So I'm out again for six months. Hope mm -hmm. It's what they've put on it. But there's things you can do. Find out what you can do to try and get back. It's, mm -hmm. You don't have to take it as the fate complete that that's it and I'm out. Yeah. Um, which apparently some people do. That's mm -hmm. just not me. But please, just... Don't just donate, become a regular donor. Because mm, yeah. if they know they can count on you coming in and you're going to come in, it just makes all the processes flow a mm. little bit simpler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on that note, I am also excluded for a little while. I need to have surgery that's putting me out of action for doping oh. for a little while as well. Um, and, you know, it's just something, as you said, it's just part of our fortnightly routine that we make it work, that yeah. I can do a plasma um, donation. You know, it's keeping my kid alive. So it's very important for me to be able to be there and to be able to do that. Um, so, yeah, between you and I being out for a little while, if we can help to recruit some new donors. Absolutely. Um, and they can fill in the spots that we aren't able to do at the moment. That would be Please amazing. Do. So that's a little call out yeah, to the Sunshine Coast community. If they can get their bums in a yeah. chair at Maroochydore and Ambo to fill our spots for a little while, we would very much appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I look at my time in the chair as my chill zone, for want yeah. of a better term. Yeah. Because as long as you can hear the machine, you, after a while you work out the noises certain cycles so you know when to squeeze and when not to you don't even have to think about it the only thing i don't like is you do have to stay awake i haven't got it into the subconscious enough that i can just doze off and do it um, <laughs> and let's be honest they get a little bit funny if you doze off they get a little bit worried they're probably going to yeah, come they do. You up and make sure you're okay <laughs> absolutely but you know it's it's that time and it gives you that time out and mm. you know, for people like yourself it's probably definitely yeah. a timeout that's more critical than it is for myself. Yeah, but that I get more frustrated about being excluded from that than I do about anything else yeah. genuinely in my life. It's like, no, you can't, no, yeah. no, you can't stop me. And it becomes very much part of your identity as well, being a blood donor, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it does. I think that's a really right. important thing. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I agree. 
All yep, right. Well, on behalf of every blood product recipient in Australia and all the people that love them because you've helped to preserve lives as well as, you know, keep people alive. Um, I just want to thank you so much for being a blood donor. Um, Marley and I absolutely loved seeing you earlier in the year and being able to thank you face to face and just looking at you and Marley standing together and knowing that there's a huge likelihood that there's a big bit of your generosity and kindness floating around in our daughter keeping her alive and you know we're about to pack up the kids and go down and enjoy some of this sunshine and take them fishing this afternoon and you know the simple fact is without blood donors like you we wouldn't be able to go and do that as a family this afternoon so thank you so much um it's such an honor to have you as our first donor guest on the podcast and i hope to see you back in the chair very soon uh that will happen yeah lovely i'm sure and I thank you. It it was such a, an honour and a privilege to meet you both. Um, and as you know, I was really pleased you did that before, after, if you like, after the television, because I don't yeah, think after I could some media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, yeah, it just touches my heart. Yeah, it genuinely and does, and I thank you for that. Thank you. Well, that conversation very much um, influenced us to include donors as part of our second season of the podcast. So hopefully, this is a start of us. Yeah telling some other amazing stories now i feel the weight of it upon my shoulders <laughs> see i told you after we did the interview no pressure we've done this before <laughs> yeah, <thanks. laughs> amazing thank you so much jeff <laughs> thank you kate jeff and i stayed chatting after we finished recording and he shared with me his greatest tip for donating blood or anyone who has a fear of needles you know we're only actually born with two fears mm. in our life Two, that's all. And that's the fear of falling and the fear of a loud noise, which is what they test in the APGAR test. Yeah, yeah. Everything else is a learned response. Mm -hmm. So fear of needles, fear of anything can be overcome. It's not going to happen without some struggles and a bit of pain mm -hmm. in our life, but we can overcome them. And I, that, I like that statement because mm -hmm. um, some of the stuff that we do in life, you just you start to tense and freak me. Oh, hang on. This is just my perception of what's going on. So when it comes, if you're scared of needles, there are people there who are absolutely, almost literally will hold your hand through it. Mm. If not literally, they'll do that for you. Mm. And it's so. their bread and butter. That's what they do every day as right. well. And I think people have had, you know, bad experiences, you know, at pathology or in emergency department oh, yeah. or whatever, when they've been really sick and it's hard to get a vein or whatever, you know, this is what they do. And they are yep. the best at it because that's what they're trained to do and to make people's experience as comfortable as possible. And another thing, yeah. uh, if you drink, just drink water on the day of, the day before and the day after your donations, mm -hmm. it helps. It genuinely helps. Thins mm. your blood out, gets your veins up, all that sort of stuff. It makes it a lot simpler and easier, both for yourself and for the nurses who are, who are looking for your veins. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. We loved putting this episode together because you can see how easily Jeff's donation could have been the ones that have kept both Marley and Baxter alive. This podcast aims to bridge the gap of anonymity between Australian blood donors and their recipients, and I absolutely adore opportunities like this to thank donors personally. Baxter and Noni asked that we include a thank you as well to all of the amazing staff that look after children on cancer wards the childhood cancer support that helped them with accommodation to allow them to stay close to Baxter when he was having treatment away from home 
and also to Camp Quality, who gave their family exactly what they needed in some tough times. I'll also pop a link to the bone marrow registry in our show notes. Nothing feels more Australian, like the modern demonstration of mateship, than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher, with audio production by my hubby and Marley's dad, Jeff. To make an appointment to donate, please call Lifeblood on 13 14 95. Our Lifeblood team is called Milkshakes for Marley and we have donors from all over Australia, so please join us and add your donation to our team tally. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We would be grateful if you could leave a review as it will bump our episode up into other people's feeds or give us some love on the socials using the hashtag milkshakes for Marley. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prize, Marley.